0: Good morning, my name is Kim Jordan. This morning's passage comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. It can be pa- found on page 908 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How can this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months, then she returned to her home. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, good morning. All right, so I've enjoyed our time in in the uh, Gospel of Luke, looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. And uh, next Sunday, I want to invite you to come back, December 25th. Yes, Christmas Day. Uh, We're going to have a service here because this is what churches do. They meet on the Lord's Day. And so we're going to come back, and we're going to continue in in our study of, of Luke. And so I want to invite you to come back. Uh, it's going to be great. Luke chapter two. We'll look at the birth, uh, actual birth story of Jesus next Sunday. All right, y'all. How's the Christmas shopping going? I heard somebody say done. That's a that's a Christmas miracle in and of itself. So way way to go, whoever said that over this this way. Uh, as an eight year old, so this is 1988. I longed for one particular Christmas present, and uh, it it came out. It came on the market October 23rd, 1988. I do remember the date, Uh, and this particular gift was Super Mario Brothers 3, okay? Some of you have played this glorious game, wonderful game. Uh, I spent many, many hours on this game, and uh, it would probably become the number one requested gift of this season, if not for the next 12 or so months. It was a a really highly sought-after and enjoyable game. Uh, So I wonder, I know there's some kids in the room, what's your number one requested gift for this season? Do you have one. Do you have a list that you've made? You've maybe handed it to your mom or your grandma or something like that. What's what's kind of that number one uh, gift? Uh, And and let me ask you this this question or or a couple more questions. Are you willing to give more than you're willing to get? Or are you willing to get more than you're willing to give this season? Interesting to consider Jesus' words later in the Gospel of Luke. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Perhaps many of us are enjoying more uh, of of receiving than we are uh, enjoying more of giving. Uh, Even some of you kids, you know, I I think of that sentiment being, okay, as I get older, as I become a little bit more wiser, perhaps that is something I share with Jesus. But even some of you kids, I know as you've kind of perused the funny money store tables, maybe you've taken a little bit more joy in finding a useful present for mom or dad or grandma, okay? And that's a good thing. I want to affirm that. So when our horizontal relationships are concerned, Jesus says it is better to give than to receive. But friends, when we consider our vertical relationship with God, it's actually the exact opposite, isn't it? It's far more blessed to receive than to give. Because there's nothing you can truly bring to the table, nothing you can give that is fully pleasing to God, not your accomplishments or service or charity uh, during this Christmas season or your spiritual performance like your Bible reading and church attendance or good works. Our hands are always dirty. And this means, of course, what we bring to the Lord can be a little dirty. But isn't this the whole point of the gospel? You know, the the gospel is about receiving what God gives with empty hands, right? Our story this morning points to God's goodness, God's mercy to Mary and to God's people. We see Elizabeth's and John's amazement and joy. We see Mary's worship and her exaltation of Jesus. And I think what we find in this story is an example of the spirit and the wonder that should mark us during this Advent season. So with that, here's the main point in a sentence. So this is the main point of the passage, the main point of this sermon as well. You'll see it on your screen. As God begins to fulfill His promises and offer mercy, His humble people joyfully magnify Him more and more and more. I'll say it again. As God begins to fulfill His promises and offer mercy and bring this little baby boy and and offer grace and so forth, God's people, his humble people, joyfully exalt him, worship him more and more and more. And so what we see in this story, what we see really throughout the biblical narrative, whether you're in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you see this kind of pattern, you can trace it out, and that pattern is God gives and we worship. We get help from God and then he gets glory. And here we see this in electric fashion as we zoom in on the birth of our King, Jesus. So I want to give you two examples here, one from Elizabeth and one from Mary that illustrates this. So let's look first, first of all, uh, Elizabeth's joyful blessing, verses 39 through 45. So, what have we seen so far in the past couple of weeks as we've looked at Luke chapter 1? Well, the angel Gabriel's made two visits one to Elizabeth, telling her that she's going to become pregnant. She's been barren, she's old. She's going to become pregnant with John the Baptist, who's the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for Jesus. The other visit, of course, is to Mary, where Gabriel says that she's going to bear a child, um, um, the messianic king, the king that Israel's been longing for for centuries. She's a virgin, but God is going to come upon her and, and give her this child. And at the end of Gabriel's interaction with Mary, I want you to put your eyes on verse 36. I want you to notice he sneaks in another announcement, okay? Something that's not new to us, the reader, but it was new for Mary. Verse 36 says, And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. So, friends, Mary, I don't think she knew this. She probably knew cousin Elizabeth was barren. Uh, Ancient Jewish families were very close, even when they lived kind of miles apart like these two. They were likely intimately acquainted. So this must have been a shock coming from the angel. Elizabeth had kept her pregnancy hidden for five months, and then the angel kind of opens up that secret and lets her know. She's not only received the shocking news that her cousin is, is miraculously with child. She's also received her own news, right, Mary? And so what does Mary do? She travels, notice verse 39, she travels to basically the suburbs of Jerusalem. Now you have to remember her husband, Zachariah is working in Jerusalem in the temple not far uh, from where they lived. And we have to remember this was a risky journey. This was a dangerous journey from Nazareth to Judah. I mean, Why would a pregnant teenager take a five- to six-day journey traveling about 80 miles by herself? Joseph's not in sight here, right, in the story. She wanted to be with her middle-aged cousin, her elderly cousin who was with child. Remember where last week's story left off, uh, Mary uh, was commended for her faith, right? As impossible as the news felt to her, she felt fully kind of, under the Lord, and she accepted the news that God had given to her from Gabriel. And so she's about to embrace this life of scandal and scrutiny and shame. I mean, she's engaged to be married. She's with child. This is crazy, right? So she needs support. She needs confirmation. She needs a friend. And so it's faith that drives her feet, these 80 miles, to go to Elizabeth's home. And friends, I think this is really instructive for us, as we're thinking about our own faith. You know, a growing faith doesn't isolate. It shares, it opens up, it speaks up, it invites others to come in. It makes room for other people. It doesn't push other people away. I mean, just look at what occurs when she arrives. Right on on cue, right? Everyone is full of joy. Elizabeth breaks forth with joy. Mary breaks forth with worship. Even John the Baptist in the womb. What a beautiful picture of faith fueled, worship, And I want you to see the Lord's incredible kindness to Mary in this. She is walking into this house full of faith, but you have to understand she's probably also scared. But notice how God is intentionally fortifying and strengthening her faith. He didn't have to give her Elizabeth and John, right? But here they are. They're testifying to what she's already heard from the angel. God is kind to this Little woman, this 14, 15, 16-year-old. He's trying to fortify, strengthen her faith. Now, the thrust of the section, of course, is Elizabeth's blessing, right? And, And because she's filled with the Spirit, notice her words are pouring out, and her words are God's words. Okay, these are reliable words. This is a word from God to Mary. And Elizabeth sees things and she knows things that she shouldn't see and know. She announces before any prior communication that she's carrying, Mary's carrying a baby. And there's no email, right? There's no text. There's no like UPS next day delivery that she got this letter from Mary. Here she is. She, she has no knowledge of this. And yet the Holy Spirit fills her up and gives her some very particular insights. And Mary's blessing, by the way, is not because she's Mary. It's because of what God has given her. The focal point here is, of course, Jesus. And notice, friends, who is the first to confess with words that Jesus is the Christ. Is it Peter? You know, later we see Peter saying, hey, you are the Christ. Is it Peter? No, it's actually, look at verse 43, 43, excuse me, it's Elizabeth, right? Let me read 43 to you. How could this happen to me that the mother, here it is, of my Lord should come to me? Right? It's Elizabeth. She's the one that confesses Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is Lord, even before he was born. Jesus is the Lord is the earliest Christian confession. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that no one can truly call Jesus Lord unless the Spirit gives ability. So this is, this is a powerful moment. And it's powerful, by the way, that a woman, often treated as second class in the first century, would be given the utter privilege of confessing Jesus is Lord and, and being the first one to do that. There's a sort of subtle uh, redignifying of women that runs through this narrative. We'll see more of that later. And while Elizabeth was the first person to speak the words uh, and declare, declares that king, of Jesus is king, I want you to see this. Who was the first person to acknowledge unborn Jesus? You see who it is? It's interesting. You follow my social media before. I've, read, I've written about this a little bit. It's John the Baptist, right? The unborn baby. And notice, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, I think this is verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Okay, that's interesting. Well, verse 44 says that he leaped for joy. Here's a baby that's inside Elizabeth and and recognizes the presence of Jesus, the hope of the world, nearby, and leaps for joy. So I want to. I want us to think about this a little bit more, massage this into our minds and hearts a little bit. Let's let this sink in. The story of Advent begins with two unborn babies baby Jesus inside unwed Mary, and baby John inside very old Elizabeth. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And just think with with me. Unborn Jesus was welcomed to earth by the joy of a six month old unborn baby. That's astounding. Within our modern culture, there has, uh, that has tried, excuse me, so hard to weaken the reality of life in a womb. Here we have an unborn baby filled with joy. Can we just kind of stop and ponder that for a second? You know? God has miraculously given unborn John some comprehension that the Savior of the world is just nearby, right? And that moment of joyful leaping was the first instance that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. Unborn John is confirming, he's rejoicing in what Gabriel has already declared. So friends, Luke's Advent story reminds us that preborn John would become post-birth John the Baptist and preborn Jesus would become post-birth Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, had Mary and Elizabeth lived under the laws of modern-day Roe v. Wade, the plan of God to save the world might have been in jeopardy. Mary would have had a long line of people ready to tell her uh, to abort the baby, right? Save her from shame and scandal and all sorts of difficulties. You know, we think our age is more advanced and scientific. Well, these primitive people recognize from the start something our culture works hard to deny that this fetus in Mary is a human. If it's a baby when you miscarry, it's a baby when you abort. And so, friends, we need to be praising the Lord, praising God that Jesus was not born in modern-day America. We need to be praising God that unborn baby could testify to unborn Jesus. It's a spectacular story that flies in the face of modern culture. From the very beginning of human history, God planned to carry out His plan to save the world by the birth of a child. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's a wonderful uh, kind of gospel prophecy. It's the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. And what does it state? It states that one offspring of a woman, a descendant of the woman, would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then thousands of years later, here we are, and God has made good on this promise. The Son of God has come into the world... Through pregnancy and childbirth. And that very fact fills pregnancy and gestation and childbirth with incalculable dignity and meaning, doesn't it? And so, brothers and sisters, let's revel in this a little bit. The infinite God, utterly majestic, incomprehensible in his vastness, came into the world through the close spaces of a human womb. The utterly confined, excuse me, the utterly unconfined, intentionally confines himself, not only to a body, but to a birth canal. This is unfathomable to think about, but this is precisely what has happened, and it has happened because God wants to save sinners. And Mary and Elizabeth, they're just kind of stumbling over each other with blessings and songs and words in this section, right? And look at how God has blessed you. Look at how God is coming to us. Look at how God is bringing salvation, not only to you and me, but to this world. And you can sense this sense of holy privilege. How can this be happening to us? Friends, it is this wonder that ought to capture our hearts this season. So let me ask you this question. Are you gripped by a childlike wonder as you consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Are you gripped by that? Are you captivated by that? And if not, what is blocking your heart? What is kind of stuffing up your heart or filling up your heart so that you're not able to comprehend and apprehend and, and grow in your affection for our God and grow in wonder? What are the obstacles that are perhaps in the way? to feeling those kinds of things, The feeling the kind of things that both Elizabeth and Mary felt. Notice in Elizabeth's final statement, this is verse 45, she blesses Mary for her faith. Verse 45 says, "'Blessed is she, Mary,' who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. You know, as she's filled with the Holy Spirit, she's, she's probably thinking back to all these Old Testament prophecies, all these different puzzle pieces about a king and a, and about this, this uh, serpent head crusher and all these different prophecies that are out there and, and these puzzle pieces that are all over the place. And God is giving her the ability as she's looking at Mary and thinking about what's in her belly, God's giving her the ability to pull all of those threads together and, and see how it's all fulfilled in Jesus. And so she sees that she's Putting the puzzle together, she sees a picture of the Savior. And it's not just Elizabeth. She is commending, of course, Mary's faith. Mary believes God's fulfillment is at hand. Mary believes that God has a plan and it's coming to fruition. And here's the crazy thing. She believes before the plan is fulfilled, right? There's no baby in front of her right now. But she believes. Isn't this the ethos of Christian faith as well? God has a plan, He's made some promises. Will we trust or not in the everyday stuff of life? We too are kind of living between the times of promise and fulfillment. Uh, we're, we're still kind of waiting for more realization of God's promises. Faith is that settled conviction that that. We've not seen it all. We haven't experienced it all. Stuff is still coming. But what God has said will occur. He always keeps his promises. That's faith. And God's plan centers, notice, on the salvation of this little baby and, and the salvation that this little baby will bring to the world. And friends, part of that plan is pulling the threads of all of our lives into the beautiful tapestry God is weaving. You know, oftentimes we look for God's plan for my life it was God's plan for my life and God's plan for your life over there. And I just wanna encourage you, don't look for God's plan for your life as if your thread wanders off over there and God's involved and my thread wanders off over here and God might be involved or maybe he's not. I wanna encourage you to look for how God's plan of salvation involves you, how, how your separate thread and your kind of life history over here is being brought into the tapestry that God is making. God is trying to save a people for himself. How are you a part of that? He wants to save people. He wants to make them holy. He wants to conform them to the image of his son, Jesus. He wants to keep that group of people and help them persevere and protect them all the way along the path to the celestial city. That's the plan. So friends, how is he doing that right now for you if you've demonstrated faith and repentance, if you're part of God's people? I think thinking on these sorts of things will cultivate a sense of awe and wonder. Let me remind you of our main point, uh, because it relates, of course, to this, as God begins to fulfill His promises, that's what we're seeing, and offer mercy, that's what we're seeing in Elizabeth and Mary. What occurs? Well, worship starts to multiply. We see that in Elizabeth, we're starting to see that in Mary, and we of course see that in John the Baptist, even though he's inside his mother's womb. Now we get to see how things turn around for Mary, and how all of these different puzzle pieces as they're coming together for Mary brings forth an exuberance worship. So here's the second point, main kind of heading here, Mary's joyful song, verses 46 through 56. And just in a few minutes here, there's going to be three subpoints under this second point. So just a heads up on that. Look with me at verses 46 and 47, how her song, her magnificat, that's Latin for uh, magnify, how it comes together, how it begins. And Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord or magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Remember, friends, she's in a perilous situation, uh, full of scandal and shame and uncertainty. She receives this word from Elizabeth, and she's encouraged by it, and it confirms what the angel Gabriel says, and then she starts to worship. Here's her Magnificat. It's one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. It's powerful. It's truly stunning. It's life-giving as you consider the different elements within it. Do you know it's also the inspiration for the very first question and answer from the Westminster Catechism? Let's try to review together, okay? So I've said this before. What is the chief end of man? To which the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So in the 17th century, the Westminster divine, we're trying to figure out, divines, the leaders, we're trying to figure out how do I start this com- this catechism, what should be the the main thing that we begin? And, And they were inspired by the words of the Virgin Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She puts together these two glorious essentials, magnifying God and rejoicing in God. You know, this is one of the great secrets of the Christian life, seeing the greatness of God and seeing that the greatness of God goes hand in hand with a spirit that delights in God. Reminds me of John Piper's famous quote, right? God is most glorified in us when we are most no. Did I say it right? Yeah. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Those two things are so important. And then seeing how they're connected together. You know, two things that are often contradictory to unbelievers. You know, unbelievers would think magnifying God means minimizing our joy or maximizing our joy means minimizing God. you got to choose one. you got to go down the path of joy and then you ignore God or you're going to go down the path of God and there's no joy involved. But these two realities are brought together with stunning clarity in the experience of this teenage girl, Mary. So how are we going to learn to do this? How are we going to learn to magnify and enjoy God forever. You can't learn this from Ralphie or Rudolph or Scrooge, right? You can't kind of work up the spirit of Christmas in yourself. Maybe you've tried that before. Maybe you've tried that in the last couple of weeks. This is something that this, this awe, this wonder, this magnification, this enjoyment, this is something given to us from God by the Spirit, isn't it? So it's really as we, we see with spiritual eyes the things that Mary sees that's when our souls are touched. That's when our hearts are tuned to sing his praise. So we've got to kind of analyze what does Mary see? Well, I want to point out three images that Mary sees about God. She sees God's eyes, God's arm, and God's mouth in this song. In verses 48, 51, and 55, that's what she sees. She sees God seeing certain things. She sees God's arm doing certain things, and she's heard God speak in the past certain prophecies. So we're going to look at that. Here's the three sub points. The first one is this, God looks with favor on the humble. Notice verse 48, because or for. So what's the reason that I can magnify and rejoice? Here's her first reason, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servants. Mary, of course, is the object of God's gaze here. Here she is. She's this teenage girl. She's engaged to be Uh, married to a carpenter. She's living in God-forsaken Nazareth. She's shamed by her own people. And she says, God sees me. She says, "God looks upon me. God knows me. And so again, we see God's utter kindness towards this woman. And notice it says in the next verse, or in that verse, excuse me, that generations will be called, uh, generations will call her blessed. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You see that? This is not because of anything she did. Notice the because here in verse 49, because the mighty one has done great things for me. So it's the mighty one who has encountered her and and, and pursues her and has done good things for her. And so the point here is God. The point here is not Mary. There's not the slightest hint of Mary worship or Mariolatry. You know, our, our Catholic friends err significantly when they exalt Mary beyond her station to co mediator her with Jesus. Mary identifies herself as lowly in this passage. In the same breath, she exalts God for his greatness. And so Mary is an example of faith and worship. She's not the object of faith and worship. Jesus is, right? And she begins to tell us precisely why she's able to do this magnification. Again, in verse 48, she says, I'm a nobody. I'm just a young girl. There's no spiritual resume that I have. Uh, I'm not from royal blood. I'm quite ordinary. But here's the thing. Here's the key thing here. She knows it. She knows that she's lowly. How does Mary see herself in light of God? Notice she calls herself a servant. She calls herself, uh, she, she describes herself in, as being in humble condition. So she, she, she sees herself as being pretty low and humble and, 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 and kind of nothing before God. But notice her descriptions of her God. She calls him Lord and Savior and the Mighty One. And she says his name is holy, just like we sang just a few minutes ago. She is absolutely stunned that this God would stoop so low to do this amazing thing for her. So friends, what do we learn from this? We learn that astonishment begins with humility. God stoops towards us. God pays attention to us. And in Jesus, isn't this precisely what we find? The utterly holy The transcendent one, the all-powerful, the majestic and mighty God bends so very low to meet us, to touch our lives, to help us. This is Mary's experience. Her wonder is rooted not in the latest Hallmark movie. Her wonder isn't rooted in, in, in the latest holiday community service project that's bringing her warm fuzzies. These are both good things. Okay, let's face it. The former is an okay thing. The latter is a good thing. Okay but all the things that, that capture attention during the Advent season and at times kind of pull at our affections and cause us to stand in awe of things other than Jesus. I want you to notice, friends, that Mary's wonder is rooted in God stooping to see her and give her grace. The more we recognize this divine stooping in the incarnation, the more wonder, the more worship will be our experience as well. So friends, what does this mean practically? It means that we need to take time. We need to take time to stand in awe of the incarnate son. It's hard to be astonished when you don't pause. It's hard to be astonished when you don't linger, when you don't look at these things carefully and deeply and prayerfully. But but if you if you stare at this This manger scene, if you stare at the glory that is being revealed to Mary and Elizabeth and meditate on it and and cultivate a sense of holy privilege, your heart will bloom with wonder. And this is one of the reasons why we sing the carols we do. We just sang some beautiful carols earlier this morning. We're trying to gain a sense and cultivate a sense of that holy privilege that Mary felt in her heart. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead seed. See it, hail, worship, right? Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's the first subpoint. There. Here's the second thing that Mary sees. She sees God's arm. She sees God acting with power towards the needy. This is verses fifty through fifty-three. We're looking at her psalm and or song. Excuse me, and trying to analyze it. Look at these verses, verses 50 through 53. This is the part where Mary, Mary's mind starts to kind of go big beyond just kind of her personal experience. And I want you to notice that God's mercy travels not only to her, not only to Elizabeth, it's for every generation. Look at verse 50. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. But also, as you consider verse 55, notice it talks about Abraham's descendants those include all of God's people, people from every nation, all who call in the name of Jesus with faith. And so this mercy, God's mercy, God's salvation goes out, first of all, to every generation. That's a chronological reality, but also to every nation. That's a geographical reality. Mercy is not just for Mary. It's for all who call on the name of Jesus and fear God. And friends, we I mean, what privilege we have? I'm going to get to that later. I shouldn't steal my later thunder now. So what does this mercy look like? Look at verses 51 and following. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. There it is. There's a the language of arm. We see this language about God's arm all over the Old Testament in Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Psalms in particular, but also the prophets. When it's first used, it refers to God delivering his people from Egypt, saving them powerfully with his arm. With his hand, it says as well. And then the prophets repurpose the phrase to speak about God's future salvation. God is going to save his future people with his arm. And then, and this is the crazy part, the arm of the Lord works itself through the arm of Moses. This is interesting. In other words, it's more than just a metaphor. Arm, or God's arm, is a description of God's chosen human mediator. See where this is going. What is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, God's arm working out salvation is then enfleshed fully in Jesus. I mean, isn't Jesus God's arm of salvation, friends? Aren't all the promises of God's arm to save his people fulfilled here in Mary's song as she's kind of looking forward and seeing Jesus as her savior king And what will Jesus, God's arm, do? Look at the rest of these verses, verses 51 and 52. Notice five quick descriptions of what God's arm does, what Jesus does. This is a reiteration of what we saw in Hannah's song that was read earlier this morning, 1 Samuel 2. This is what God accomplishes for his people, these reversals. He scatters the proud, he topples the mighty, he exalts the lowly, he satisfies the hungry, he sends away the rich empty. And we might be tempted to literalize this in such a way that you know anyone who is wealthy or has political power is an enemy of God or we to say that God loves only those who have a poor life or a difficult life. Not at all. What Mary is doing is she's dividing the world into these two groups and she's, she's probably thinking about Hannah's song back in 1 Samuel chapter two. There's a group of people that are the humble. There's a group of people that are proud. Those whom Jesus works with, full of faith and so forth, and those whom Jesus cast down. And the difference boils down to our recognition, and here it is, a recognition of our great need for God. Friends, do you and I recognize our great need for God? Or do we have other things that fill up our lives with significance? Maybe other things in life besides God give you security and purpose. Maybe it's power or influence or money. Maybe it's relationships or family or professional success. Whatever you kind of carry around as a badge of honor. And listen, it can even be something hard, uh, like suffering. You can carry around your suffering as a badge of honor. Look at what I've gone through. Look at how I've persevered through this. Look at me. Whatever might be a badge for you. And these things kind of give us the impression that we don't need God. Sure, if, if something hard comes up, God is going to be good for a temporary crutch. But I've got this. But friends, we don't realize alongside our friend Mary that we always need a crotch, don't we? We are needy people. We are needy people. You might be able to handle much of what the world can throw at you, but here's one thing you absolutely cannot handle. I guarantee it. You cannot handle your own sin and guilt before a holy God. Someone else has got to handle that for you. Who's it going to be? We are inherently sinful before a holy God. We are in the proud category as you're looking at these phrases that are piling up. We are in the mighty category. We're in the exalted category here. Not because we have a huge bank account or something like that, but because we don't know our neediness. Before we met Jesus, before we encountered the grace of God, we were settled in our sin and arrogance. And so we deserved to be cast out of God's presence forever. We deserved his wrath which is or would have been eternal. That's not something we can handle. That's not something we're going to get ourselves out of, right? And friends, this is precisely what Jesus was born to handle for you. And isn't this what faith means after all? To allow someone else to handle something for you, something you can't handle for yourself? Isn't this what Mary is singing about? Isn't this what Mary is kind of teaching us? That you are needy that you need to get low, that you ought to have faith in God's salvation through his arm, Jesus. So what about you? What about you and me? Do we have a sense? Do we have a sense of our neediness each day, our desperate neediness before a holy God? I hope you have that sense. Number three, the third sub point here, the thing that she sees in this song, and we're looking at verses 54 and 55. We're coming to the end of the sermon, I promise. Uh, And what do we see here? We see God's eyes. Excuse me, we already saw that. We see God's mouth. Okay, so let me read these verses for you. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. Here it is, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So this third sub point is God speaks of covenant mercy for his people. Here, Mary's reaching way back into Israel's history, back when God made a covenant and dictated kind of specific terms and promises to Abraham and his descendants, promises of blessing and descendants and protection and so forth. And God keeps repeating these promises all the way through the Old Testament. And he reminds his people not only of these promises, but to trust him. And so, Mary is singing about the grounds of God's salvation through Jesus. What are those grounds? It's this covenant. It's this commitment that God has made way, way back then. I don't know about how you and your family open presents, but let me tell you about how our family does this, okay? So we gather together Christmas morning. Next week, it might be 7.30 in the morning, <laughs> um, and we all circle up, and then one of my kids will hand a present to each person and then, you know, every person kind of unwraps together and then we go to the next wave and so forth, right? So that's how we do it and how you do it. Well, I want you to imagine this Christmas morning, someone hands me this beautifully wrapped present, gorgeous present with a bow on it and everything. And I'm so excited to open it up. Wonderful present. I open it up. It's a great present. It's Super Mario Brothers 6 or something, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just delighted in this, this wonderful present. But then I open up my wallet and I asked the person who gave me the gift, how much do I owe you? Can I pay you back? Now, not only is this deeply absurd, but that would be offensive, wouldn't it? This is the point of these final verses, I think. God shows mercy to those who don't try to pay for it. I think that's what he's saying here, who can't earn it, but who can only freely receive it. Friends, why do we receive God's salvation? Why does he lavish all this mercy on us through Jesus? We don't earn it. We don't haggle for it. We don't twist his arm for it. It's not tit for tat. It's wholly based on God remembering what he has promised in ages past. Promise is based on this covenant relationship that he started with Israel and Abraham. Because friends, at the very bottom of God's promises and his mercy towards us is this loving covenant relationship. He gives us mercy through Christ before before the foundation of the world. He sets his love on you and me. Why, why is this important? Because we want to find reasons for God to love us, don't we? <laughs> Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've not done. You know? Do You see this virtue in my heart? You see it? It's great. Of course God loves me. Do you see me? This is precisely like looking at this wonderful gift of a baby in a manger, this incredible gift of salvation, and then pulling out your Venmo app, trying to give some money back to God. It's absurd, isn't it? And it diminishes, it diminishes the glory of the incarnate Son. When we do that in our hearts, how much do I owe you, God? We must reckon within ourselves that salvation is a free gift even though it pricks our egos. If you think you can pay for it, you're not going to get it. But if you recognize your moral and spiritual bankruptcy, if you hold your hands open, put away your wallet, you're going to get it. Because faith never gives, does it? Faith always receives. That's how it works in the Christian faith. Okay, so this is why Mary sings this incredible song. Uh, She she rejoices in what God sees and does with his arm and has spoken long ago. And so she's so moved by all of this that she kind of erupts with worship and wonder. But friends, do you realize that our Magnificat today should be even bigger and better than hers? Because we know more, we see more, we understand more. Yes, than even precious Mary. Our worship and our wonder ought to be doubled and tripled and quadrupled by the fact that we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We who are 2,000 years removed but have seen God's salvation pour forth in every generation for 2,000 years. We who have seen God's mercy spread out among the nations as churches have been planted and converts have been brought in for God's glory. We who have not only new spiritual eyes, but the breath of time and history to see the unfolding of God's promises as they land on individuals and churches. Friends, how much more, how much more should we during this Advent season see and sing and savor our precious Savior Jesus and all that he means for a lost humanity? We have astonishing spiritual riches at our disposal. More than Mary had when she wrote this song. And so our sense of holy privilege should be that much more substantial, that much more incredible. And so let's humble ourselves. Let's accept this gift with open hands. Let's learn to cultivate a sense of holy wonder, which means cultivating a sense of holy privilege. And then let's together joyfully magnify our God Amen. Let's take a moment to consider the passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.